If you've learned the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, then you will already have learned the basic layout of the Book of Romans. It follows exactly the same pattern, guilt and grace and gratitude. Paul outlines the source of our guilt, our sin before God, uh, our fallen humanity, destroyed due to Adam's disobedience and sin. And he tells us that before God we are inexcusable, for all have sinned. And he introduces the concept of God's grace, which we obtain by faith alone, God's unmerited favour. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then, having had our sins forgiven and been adopted into God's family all through Christ's saving work on the cross, how then will we live? Surely we'll be truly grateful to be relieved of the burden of sin and to have our fellowship with God restored. And we will desire from this time forward to live in such a way that will please our Heavenly Father. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Paul lays this out for us in chapter 12 to chapter 16 of Romans. It's the practical application of the systematic theology that he has taught us in the previous chapters. So he begins with, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In this sermon preached at Temple Patrick Reformed Church back in 2017, we look at that verse. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast. What about the practical responsibilities of the Christian life? What will our grateful response to Christ's saving work look like? Now we find that in Romans chapter 12 to 16. And the very first point that Paul makes is this one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So the very simple point that I leave with you tonight is that a Christian must be consecrated. So consecration is our proper response to Christ. Let's see what Paul teaches us about it. Predictably, there are three points. There is the cost of consecration. There is the cause of consecration. And there is the challenge of consecration. Cost, cause, and the challenge. What's the cost of consecration? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. We are to be a living sacrifice. Some people talk about how we ought to lay ourselves, our all, upon the altar for the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus put it like this. He said in Matthew chapter 16 that if any man will come after him and if any man will follow him, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Now to take up the cross had great weight of meaning among the people whom Jesus was speaking to in those days. They would have seen men bearing their cross. A man who was bearing a cross, to take it up a cross, was a man who was condemned to carry his own instrument of torture to his own place of execution. To carry the cross was a final act of degradation. It was a horrible, painful, emotional experience. And the Lord Jesus is telling his disciples, perhaps with visions in their mind of having seen people under the the, the driving of the Roman whips, trudging up the hill to the place of execution, bearing that instrument of execution, knowing they were about to die. And Jesus must have said to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to have to be like one of them. Take up your cross and deny yourself. That is some commitment, isn't it? Let's look at the text for a wee moment. It says here that consecration will affect our body. We are to present our bodies. All of it. Much of my time do I waste in useless worldly pursuits. My hands, which have done sinful works. My feet, which have walked in sinful ways, should now be redeemed in yielding practical service to the Lord. And my voice, which once uttered sinful, lewd, blasphemous words, should now be singing his praise in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And my business life and my work and my employment that once would only have been used to gain wealth for myself. Now given over a service to God. And my will, my will which once was so hardened against the gospel should now be yielded to him alone. And my emotions that were once given free reign in my life, my emotions that were used to bring self-gratification and pleasure in the flesh should now be devoted to God alone. And what about the love that I have, the selfish self-love now poured out in love before the Lord as the object of my affection and him as the source of all love, my grateful response to what the Lord has done for me in Christ will affect my body, all of it. Didn't Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Consecration must affect our body, and that means all of it. But it also must be a continuous experience. We're to be here a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. What use is a dead sacrifice? What use would it be in the Old Testament economy? 
If a farmer had gone out into the field and he'd found a wee dead lamb lying amidst the flock, and he'd picked the wee dead lamb up and he'd taken it down to the temple and he'd offered it as a sacrifice to the priest. And he'd said to the priest, look, I I haven't got much to bring you today. I couldn't find anything among the flock, but here's something dead that'll do. Once the animal was dead, it was no longer a sacrifice. And the animals that were brought even the first fruits of the flock and were and were laid on the altar and were put to death and sacrificed, those animals were worthless once the sacrifice had been offered. One-off sacrifice. So more and more and more sacrifices were needed. But look, we are to be living sacrifices. Laying our lives on the altar as a response to what the Lord has done for us, will be something that will require every minute of every hour of every day. It's not a one-off thing. It's not an instant sanctification. It's not an instant second blessing. It's not putting your hand up in a meeting when you're called forward to consecrate yourself as an act of holiness. It is an everyday examination of yourself. In fact, the Lord Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, in that parallel passage to the Matthew passage where he tells the disciples to take up their cross and deny themselves and follow him, he adds the word daily, every single day. Consecration affects my body, all of myself, It affects a lifelong commitment, a continuous experience until I get to heaven and home. But there's something else that we see about the cost of this consecration. It is thoughtful and it is worshipful. You see, it is our reasonable service. There's some very, very interesting translations of that part of the verse. The AV, reasonable service. ESV, spiritual worship. The NIV, true and proper worship. Various different ways in translating it. But whenever I went to check it out in the, in the Greek text just to see what is exactly right, because I was interested by what it says here about reasonable service. I mean, does that say that's just as much as we can do, reasonable service? I discovered that actually the word for reasonable is derived from the word logos. That was interesting, because that implies reason and word. Worship and word. It's a rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. I like that. Because here, Paul links your worship, your service for God, something that is intellectual. Our consecrated service to God is to be rational and thought out and intelligent and respectful and holy. And because we have consecrated our lives to God does not for one moment mean that we have left common sense out of the equation. A well-reasoned service. Now, that's the cost of consecration. Now, that seems like a lot of work to me. Why would we want to do it? 
And this is where we come to our second point, the cause of consecration. Why should we, when our sins are all forgiven, why should we put ourselves to so much inconvenience and cost? Well, Paul explains it to us here. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. I want to suggest to you tonight that the mercies of God is both our motive and our method for our consecration. It's our motive for consecration in the sense that when we consider what the Lord has done for us at the cross, how can we do otherwise but to take up our cross and follow after him? We think of the mercies of God for us. There is the motive for our consecration. That's why Paul's beseeching us to offer up our bodies and our whole lives continually as a living sacrifice to the Lord because that's our proper response. The subjective effect of the mercy of God upon our lives will be to motivate us to yield our lives to him. But the mercies of God are not just our motive for consecration. It's also our method. There's an objective result as well. Because at the cross, remember, we are given forgiveness. We're given a home for heaven. We're given a new status. We're brought into a new relationship with the Lord Jesus. Through the mercies of God, we have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Through the mercies of God, we have been given new life in Christ. Through the mercies of God, Paul could say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, and all things are passed away, and all things have become new. And we deserve none of those blessings. They are only ours because of God's mercy alone. And because we have a new life within us, not only do we have the motive for service to him, but we have the method for he enables us to serve him by giving us a new heart. So when we consider the mercy that God has upon us, saving us from our sin and our misery, we see that objectively God's mercy has transformed us and made us new and given us the ability to live for him and has motivated us in that we appreciate what he has done for us and as a response we serve him. So, got the cost of consecration and we've got the cause of consecration now what about the challenge this is my final thought this evening because when I think of these things I immediately am challenged myself because I know my life is not what it ought to be I know that I'm a sinner a wretch how could my sacrifice ever be acceptable to God. How could it? How could it ever be? After all, everything I do is so far short of what God requires of me. 
In Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, So likewise ye, when ye have done all these things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done only that which was our duty to do. That's us. At least that's me. I look at my life and look at my service. I can only say before the Lord, you know, I am only an unprofitable servant. They say all political careers end in failure. But by the standard of Luke 17 and verse 10, we might have successful ministries in the sight of men. But when we stand before God, I wonder, will each one of us, when our ministry is examined, will we still say we are nothing but unworthy servants? We're nothing but unprofitable servants, for we have only done that which was our duty to do. So how can my personal sacrifice, how can my consecration ever be acceptable unto God? This is the challenge. Now immediately you're going to say, well, you'll have to try harder. Do you know, I can't. No matter how hard I try, I fail. Even Paul, the apostle, in Romans chapter 7, looking at his own personal life, said, oh, wretched man that I am. I certainly can't please God if my sins have never been repented of. Sure I can't. The good works, the religion of an unregenerate person, that'll never be acceptable to God. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so I'm going to look back at the verse and try and work out here. How on earth can I ever present myself consecrated before the Lord? And I'm looking at the word acceptable. How could I ever be acceptable to God? Do you know? There's only one way, and that's if I'm in Christ Jesus. Because there was only one person who was ever acceptable to him, and that one is Christ. If we try to live our lives for him in our own strength, if we boast of our own holiness or our own abilities, we will fail. We can never please God by our works, even our works of Christian service. But notice again that this verse is rendered acceptable. Other translations use the word well-pleasing. Now I want to ask you a question. With whom was God well-pleased? Do you remember the story of the baptism of the Lord Jesus at the River Jordan? Do you remember how there was a voice from heaven in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ received from God the Father honor and glory. 
when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, no matter how hard I try, I will never be acceptable to God in my own strength, in my service. But I can be well pleasing to God. If I offer what miserable service I have to him and his son. My role, therefore, is to be humble enough to admit that I'm not going to please God in my own. And to repent every day of all my sins and my failures. To fully trust Jesus and to depend on him who has earned God's commendation and good pleasure for me. To trust him, childlike faith. I have a wee granddaughter called Chloe, and she's, um, Chloe's six or seven, and uh, my daughter sent me a photograph on the phone a few weeks back. She'd been asked in school to draw a picture. Draw a picture of someone you can trust. And she'd written, a, the teacher had written across the top of it, someone I can trust is. And she had to fill in the rest. So she drew a picture of her Auntie Sarah, my son's wife. And she had written on the thing, I, the person I can trust is Auntie Sarah. She'd spelt Sarah wrong. The, photo, the picture that she drew you looked, looked nothing like her. The hair colour was all wrong. Totally wrong. The shape was wrong. The face was wrong. The spelling was wrong. Chloe brought it home to her mommy and she showed it to her. And she says, Mommy, look what I have done. Here's the person I can trust. And mommy looked at it and said, Who's this Chloe? Chloe looked surprised. It's Auntie Sarah. Sure you can see, isn't it? Just like her. <laughs> so she took it to show it to Auntie Sarah. And I wonder what Auntie Sarah said when she saw it. Did she say, Chloe, you know what? You've failed. You've fallen well far short of the mark because you can't even spell my name right. And not only have you not spelt my name right, you've made me too fat and you've given me the wrong hair and you've put on clothes I would never wear. That's not me at all. I am not at all happy with this drawing. Do you think she would say that? Not at all. She looked at the drawing and she looked at the point of the drawing. The point of the drawing that said, somebody I can trust is my Auntie Sarah. And despite the imperfections, the fact that she had stated that she could trust her, Sarah was well pleased. I think that the only person who ever earned God's commendation was Jesus. But I think God will be well pleased that despite the fact that my service falls abysmally short, that I will have trusted in his son. So my consecration is costly. 
And it involves every part of my life, my body, my will, my emotions. They must all be surrendered to the Lord. But I want to surrender them to him because of what he has done for me. And his redeeming work enables me to surrender to him. And the challenge I have now is to recognize the meanness and the lack of enthusiasm that is in my consecration. And to realize that trusting Christ, even my meager efforts, will be well-pleasing unto the Lord. 